I'm Sandy Willette. And I am Nancy Marie. Co-chairs of Beyond the Mass Committee to evaluate scholarly doctoral projects. Next deadline for work to be considered to present on Beyond the Mask is October 1. Please complete the one-page application found on Beyond the Mask webpage to be considered. We look forward to working with you. Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again for another episode of Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. I'm Jeremy Heiner. And I'm Sass Salisho. And as you're aware, if you guys have been listening to us, we try to provide you information about clinical anesthesia topics, information that you can take in the operating room and help improve the care for your patients. We do case management, pharmacology, critical events, and try to tie in the science to substantiate the things that we're going to be mentioning and talking to you about. And today, today is one of Jeremy Heiner's favorite topics. Hey, Jeremy, what is one of your favorite topics to always talk about or discuss? It's airway, baby. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, you know it. You know it. Um, So we have been doing several episodes lately um, on airway management, and this is in preparation for this year's AANA 2023 Annual Congress in Seattle. I'll be speaking there several times. Looking forward to it. And so we wanted to put out some episodes just to kind of get folks ready for this conference. We know your time is important, so we're going to get right to it. As always, take some deep breaths and pre yourself because you're going to need it. And Jeremy, what time is it? Oh, we know what time it is. It is go time. It's go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. So Jeremy, now let's talk about one of your favorite topics, awake intubation. Yeah, and and I do love talking about this. And we've asked this question before, when was the last time you did an awake intubation in your anesthesia practice? Was it last week? Was it last month? Was it when you were in training or have you never, ever done an awake intubation? Most people said that they have actually never done an awake intubation. Others said they did, the last one they did was in their anesthesia training program. And very few have said that they've done one within the last year. 
Yeah, and I think that, you know, over the course of time, when we've seen awake intubations done or when technology wasn't as good as it is now or training training programs, you know, it's a very cumbersome process. It's unknown. We don't do it very often, but it's something, of course, as you talk about, that's very valuable in specific situations. And Sass, you're absolutely right. It is something that is not done very often. But again, it's one of those airway procedures that if we need, if, if there's an indication to do it, we need to be ready to rock and roll. And several episodes ago, we talked about an awake intubation technique that anesthetizes the airway, and we call it topical thunder. And you can do it in less than eight minutes. For this episode, we're going to talk more about the process of getting to an awake intubation. What are the indications? What exactly is an awake intubation? All right, so let's start with that first question, Jeremy. What is an awake intubation? So yeah, essentially, an awake intubation is placing an endotracheal tube in the trachea while the patient continues to spontaneously breathe. And I know you guys already know this definition. It's done when a patient has a known or a suspected difficult airway. And this could be for several reasons. Now, the principal advantage of doing an awake intubation over a rapid sequence intubation is that you do not take away the patient's respiratory or airway reflexes, which makes this method of intubation much safer in many circumstances. Now, in order to do an awake intubation, it requires proper anesthesia applied to the airway. And these days, we can do that topically. Now, can nerve blocks be done? The answer is absolutely yes, they can be. And there are several nerve blocks that can be done, including the transtracheal nerve block. But a patient may not want needles in their neck. So we can do this topically. And many times this is done in combination with light sedation. Now, one thing that is very important when we are going to perform or making the decision to perform an awake intubation is the ability to have a cooperative patient. So we have to have a patient who's going to cooperate with us. Yeah, I don't want needles in my neck. (laughs) Who wants needles in their neck? Right, and plus, you know, we don't do that. We learned it in school, we teach it, we understand it academically, but if you're not doing something as critical as that every day, um, that gets a little bit dicey. All right, so overall, what is the incidence of awake intubation? Yeah, so and, uh, this is a great question, Sass. Uh, the overall incidence is actually pretty low. So we're, we're taking these statistics based on registry data. And uh, if you look at the UK, they looked at data. They actually did a, a, an enormous report uh, using the National Audit Project number four. And they basically reported out that about 0.2% of all intubations are done awake. Now, more recently, there is a database known as the National Emergency Airway Registry or the NEAR Registry, and that has shown that there's an incidence of about 0.4% of an incidence for awake intubation. So what does this translate out to? Well, basically about one in every 200 to 400 intubations is done awake. So again, not a very common procedure, but as an airway expert, which CRNAs are considered airway experts. This is a tool 
that we should definitely have in our toolbox. Yeah, and I wonder if the numbers are a little bit low because people are so hesitant to do it. Oh, I think that's definitely part of the part of the issue there, 100%. All right, so let's talk about the ASA difficult algorithm. Um, what do you? What does it say currently about awake intubation? Yeah, so the, we we like to refer to this as the uh, little box to the left. So if you look, <laughs> if you look at the ASA difficult airway algorithm, uh, at, at the top it has several questions, and then it gets down to the boxes. And there's a little box to the left that deals with awake intubation. But let's just discuss a little bit about the history of the ASA difficult airway algorithm first. So this algorithm was initially developed in the, in the 90s, in the early 90s, in actually 1993. And the reason that it was developed was that there, the, the ASA looked at closed claims issues, airway issues. There was a closed claims project that identified several adverse respiratory events. So what the ASA did was they developed with a task force the difficult airway algorithm, first published in 1993, so almost 30 years ago. It underwent a revision in 2003, so 10 years later, and then again in 2013. And then the most recent updated version was released in 2022. Now each evaluation and update they always look at the current medical evidence, the published articles, and expert opinion. And one of the first steps in the updated 2022 difficult airway algorithm is simply assessing the likelihood and clinical impact of encountering airway difficulty. So basically what this is saying is that you, as an airway provider, determine or consider that the airway is gonna be difficult. The ASA algorithm suggests an awake approach, and this is the little box to the left. Now the good news is that observational studies indicate that awake, flexible endoscopy or fiber optic intubation is successful in about 88 to 100% of difficult airway patients. Now Jeremy, the ASA difficult algorithm gets all the glory. That's the one everybody knows, and that's the one we're taught. But there are other national airway societies, such as the Difficult Airway Society or the Canadian Airway Focus Group. What do they say? Yeah, and Sash, you're absolutely right. The ASA always gets all the glory, and that's because we're in the U.S. But there are other algorithms, other airway societies that are recommending and, and really highlighting the importance of performing an awake intubation when it's indicated. The Canadians, or the Canadian Airway Focus Group, or CAFAGE, they say that significant morbidity related to airway management continues to be reported, even in 2021, with the main reason being a failure to plan for difficulty. The Difficult Airway Society in the UK, they base their guidelines on the National Audit Project, where they looked at almost 3 million airway cases. And they titled this, major complications of airway management in the UK. One of their primary findings was that in many airway situations, awake intubation, it was indicated, but it wasn't used. So in other words, there were patients who demonstrated clinical features suggesting that the airway was gonna be potentially difficult with either mask ventilation or tracheal intubation, but the provider did not do an awake intubation. 
That's crazy. So, you know, we always have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. We always plan for the worst, try to be proactive. But you're, what you're saying is, even though we have reasons to believe that someone may be difficult, providers shy away from doing an awake intubation. Yeah, and earlier you mentioned that they simply might not feel comfortable doing it because they don't do it a lot. And that makes so much sense. Let me tell you uh, about an experience that we recently had at my shop where a patient came in with a known difficult airway. They were going to have an anterior cervical discectomy. So they had limited range of motion of the cervical spine. And they had several other potential anatomic difficulties indicating that they should be done, that the tube should be put in while they were spontaneously breathing and awake. But the providers thought, you know what, we're really good at video laryngoscopy. Let's go ahead and put them to sleep. We'll get it in with a VL, shouldn't be a problem. Well, guess what happened? They put them to sleep, they had problems getting the tube in, even with a VL. They caused a significant amount of airway trauma because of the repeated attempts. Luckily, luckily, they were able to bag ventilate the patient, bag mask the patient and ventilate the patient that way. But the end result, they had to cancel the case. They had to cancel that case because of the airway trauma that occurred and bring that patient back again at a later date and then do an awake intubation. Okay, so here are the takeaways for all of these societies, difficult airway algorithm recommendations on awake intubation. Awake intubation should be used when it's indicated. So what this means is it requires anesthesia departments and individual anesthesia providers to be competent and to ensure that this service is available when there are indications to use it. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of the updates from the new, the newest 2022 ASA difficult airway algorithm. And with these updates, they're emphasizing on providing O2 throughout the entire procedure. I think this was kind of just assumed with the prior versions. They're also clarifying elective invasive airway instead of just saying invasive airway access. Next, after successful intubation, so successful intubation using the awake technique, there is an emphasis on confirming using capnography and CO2 monitoring. And that is listed in the newly developed airway algorithm. What if you aren't able to get the tube in using the awake technique? So this is failure to initially secure the airway. This is termed now awake non-emergency pathway because you still have the patient awake. 
and they're still spontaneously breathing. At this point, you are supposed to call for help. This, this uh, point is, is very much stressed in the algorithm. And then it gives you several options, such as alternative airway techniques. Maybe you're going to try using a video laryngoscope. Or maybe you decide to do an elective invasive airway. So you, you have a situation that's controlled where you can anesthetize the neck and do an elective invasive airway. Now, with regards to some of these other airway societies that we've discussed, the, the, uh, the UK and the Canadians, um, they also provide infographics that depict their airway algorithms. And we will have references in the show notes that you can access these documents. All right, so this is probably the most important question and why people are tuning in uh, to hear you talk about this. What are the indications for awake intubation? Sass, you are right on the money here. Um, So when should we actually do this? An awake intubation should be considered essentially if there is serious doubt about whether you can easily take over ventilation. That's really when you should be thinking about an awake intubation. So let's go over some of these indications. And, And a lot of this you already know. So the first one, Are there any variations in normal head and neck anatomy? Do they have altered anatomy? So this is when you're doing your airway assessment and you see a malampati 4, or you see a super thick neck, or limited range of motion of of the cervical spine, short thyromental distance. The key here is that usually a patient has multiple anatomical indicators. Next, pathology within the airway that's causing a distortion or an obstruction of the upper airway. This could be a malignancy or maybe from something from a previous surgery or radiotherapy that's causing some contractures or something along the way in in the upper airway. Um, Also, something such uh, as angioedema that's causing progressive airway compromise. That could be a pathologic airway obstruction. So these are two different things, but they each indicate the potential for losing an airway. So really should be, uh, an awake intubation should be considered in these circumstances. Another indication is upper airway trauma that is limiting your ability to do airway management while the patient would be asleep. Next, how about the the risk for aspiration. So there's a significant risk for aspiration from either trauma, a severe bowel obstruction, or you know the patient has a known full stomach and requires intubation. Now, there are relatively few contraindications to awake intubation. Local anesthetic allergy would be one of them. Severe airway bleeding may be another, an uncooperative patient. But the only real absolute contraindication is patient refusal. Now, this last category of indications for awake intubation is maybe a little less known and was something that I rarely considered before I had a patient who was seriously physiologically unstable. And this category is simply known as the physiologic difficult airway. So what this means is patients who may have favorable airway anatomy they may present with physiologic issues that indicate an awake intubation. I'm talking about the patients who are so hypoxemic or so hypotensive 
or acidotic, that any even brief periods of apnea or an additional drop in blood pressure could simply send them over the edge. Now, there are several acronyms that I've kind of looked at to help remember this category. I've come up with trash, rats, haters without the E, but I gotta tell you, in these situations where a patient's saturation is 55% or a blood pressure is 65 over 30, I think SHART seems to work very well with this clinical picture of badness. Of course you would. <laughs> so, what does SHART represent with the in terms of the physiologic difficult airway? Well, the S stands for shock with significant hypotension. The H is hypoxemia. The A is acidosis. The R stands for RV failure. And the T stands for tension pneumothorax and cardiac tamponade. So I think hemodynamic instability and severe hypoxemia kind of speak for themselves. Any degree of apnea or additional hypotension is not going to be good in these patients. And patients who have severe acidosis, these are the ones who are extremely dyspneic or may have severe cardiopulmonary compromise and are hyperventilating. So again, any period of apnea or hypotension is going to send them down a, a pretty bad pathway. So now let's talk about why RV failure and tension pneumothorax and cardiac tamponade fit into this clinical picture of the physiologic difficult airway. Well, RV failure. Patients with RV failure, they're unable to tolerate a drop in systemic blood pressure or any increases in pulmonary vascular resistance. And then in a tension pneumothorax, any degree of positive pressure ventilation, such as mechanical ventilation or you, you just squeezing the anesthesia bag, increases intrathoracic pressure, potentially reducing venous return, right ventricular filling, and cardiac output. And this risks a severe drop in blood pressure and cardiovascular, cardiovascular collapse. Pericardial tamponade, similarly, does the same type of hemodynamic compromise, though there's an, the mechanism is slightly different because there's an increase in pericardial pressure which reduces the right ventricular filling and eventually the cardiac output. So the bottom line, if you got a physiologic difficult airway, remember SHART. Shock with significant hypotension, hypoxemia, acidosis, RV failure, and tension pneumothorax or cardiac tamponade. If you have any of these conditions, you should consider doing an awake intubation. If you're going to the 2023 Annual Congress in Seattle, then listen up. This is your chance to see Jeremy and Sharon in person and attend a live podcast taping. And even better, get some CE credit out of the deal. Mark your calendars for Sunday, August 20th at 3.15 in the afternoon because Jeremy and Sharon will be conducting a live podcast taping at that 2023 AANA Annual Congress in the stunning city of Seattle, Washington. You are cordially invited to join this enlightening conversation. Their topic, they will always be listening, utilizing podcasts in your curriculum and personal life 
for continued learning. It's an event designed for students, professionals, and indeed anyone with a hunger for learning. They'll delve deep into how you can leverage podcasts as a powerful learning tool in your daily routine. But that's not all. By attending this live taping, you're not just gaining invaluable insights, you're also earning one Class A CE credit. It's a fantastic opportunity to learn, engage, and earn educational credits all at once. So don't forget, Sunday, August 20th at 315 at the AANA Annual Congress in Seattle. Be there for Beyond the Mask and go on this journey of learning together with Jeremy and Sharon. All right, so let's talk about techniques used for awake intubation. When should I use a video laryngoscope? When should I use a flexible intubating fibroscope or fiber optic endoscope? What do you think? Yeah, and, it's, and you're, you're exactly right, Sass, because we have both of these tools that we can potentially use. And I think, for at least from my experience, is that a lot of my colleagues are really, really good at using video, the video laryngoscope, but the last time they use a flexible intubating endoscope, and that's the new terminology, fiber optic scope is the old terminology, um, was- I'm, I'm old. <laughs> was maybe you know last year or even in their training program. So it's been a while. So they're not as comfortable using the flexible scope. Really, you can use either one. And there are studies, there, are, there is current evidence saying that video laryngoscopy is just as effective as a flexible intubating endoscope or, or fiber, optic, fiber optic scope. And, and this is great. And what we have references in the show notes, you can, you can look at some of these studies. But I think there are certain conditions where one of these tools is maybe better than the other. So let's just talk about some of those conditions. So number one, if you have identified an anatomically difficult airway, well, we all know that a video laryngoscope is really, really good at managing this type of airway, even asleep. Awake, the same thing. You can do an awake intubation using a video laryngoscope. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that coming right up. Um, next, what are some indications maybe about that would indicate that a flexible intubating scope is better? Well, those pathological conditions. So you've got an airway mass in the airway that's distorting the normal airway anatomy and trying to get around that mass, maneuvering around that mass, a flexible scope is probably going to be better at doing that than a video laryngoscope. We recently just talked about all of those physiologic indications. And to be honest, you can use a video laryngoscope and do it awake in those situations. Uh, recently, I had a case. Uh, I was called down to the ER to intubate uh, a woman who was in cardiac arrest, who was sitting bolt upright in the tripod position, had a blood pressure of 70 over 30, and was breathing at about 35 breaths per minute, and her blood sugar was incredibly high. I knew that if I gave her any amount of induction agent, she was gonna she was gonna go into cardiac arrest. So I topicalized her airway, I used a, a video laryngoscope and we got her intubated without any issue. And um, she maintained her blood pressure throughout the whole procedure. So again, it, it de depends on the indication as to why you are doing the awake intubation. Okay, cool. So I remember a hundred years ago when I was in anesthesia school and we were practicing uh, awake intubation we would always approach the with the fibroscope from the head. What do you recommend in terms of where the provider should stand? 
Uh, that's a fantastic question, and I love that you're talking about 100 years ago. So today, in 2023, this is what the, the, the recommendations are. Sit the patient up. Sit the patient up. Because that allows the patient to have a little bit more control. Remember, you need a cooperative patient. And you can, you can place the tube awake using either a, a flexible scope or a video scope while the patient's sitting up. If you're using a flexible scope, you're going to approach the patient from the front. And if you're right-hand dominant, usually from the patient's right side. If you're using a video laryngoscope, then you're going to approach the patient from the head while they're sitting up, so you'll probably need a step stool. Really, the majority of the situations where we would consider doing a flexible intubation with the patient in the supine position and approaching from the head would be when a patient is anesthetized and supine on the OR table. Yeah, and you know, when we learn for real in practice, standing in front of the patient with a fiber optic scope is so much easier. Plus you can see the patient's face as you're doing it. And, and just simply gravity is going to take the, if, if a patient's laying flat, where are all the anatomical structures going to go? In the, in, into the pharynx area. Right. But if the patient's sitting up, they're not going to rest against that posterior pharynx. All right, so oral or nasal? So easier to go through oral, that's my opinion, but there are indications to go nasally if there's a severe obstruction in the upper airway, such as angioedema, you may not be able to go orally, so you may have to go nasally. If you are gonna do the nasal route, consider using a vasoconstrictor because the risk of bleeding is higher and you will have to anesthetize the nasal passage and the nasal pharynx. All right, so that was a lot of information there. In terms of a summary, how would you kind of sum this up? What, what is the most important part of everything that you just talked about? And that's, that's perfect. So let's, let's bring the take-homes here. Number one, there is a ton of evidence saying if you determine that a patient is at risk for a severe desaturation and you are potentially going to be unable to ventilate that patient, that's an indication for an awake airway, an awake intubation. And we talked about several of those indications, anatomically difficult, pathologically difficult, trauma, risk for aspiration, and the physiologic difficult airway using the acronym SHART. Next, uh, sit the patient up. Sit them up while you're doing awake intubation. It's going to be easier for you. Oral route, probably the most common, but nasal route is an option if the oral route is not available. And then lastly, because this is a known difficult airway, if you're planning on extubating this patient, you should have a pre-formulated strategy for extubation of this difficult airway. And this strategy, it'll, it'll depend in part on the surgery, the condition of the patient, and the skills and preference of the airway provider. Perfect. Thanks, Jeremy. This was an excellent review, and folks can certainly, you know, re-listen and re-listen to this podcast, create a plan, and then with others maybe who are more familiar with doing awake intubation, uh, start to learn for their patients. And that's exactly why we're doing this. We're doing this podcast to help demystify awake intubation. We know that it's a procedure we don't do often, but there are indications for doing it. And we want you, 
our crna family to be ready to perform this when you're called upon to do that so please let us know if you have any questions because we would love to hear from you thank you for hanging out with us during this episode and if you like what you heard and you would like to help us grow please consider sharing this with a friend and leaving a review because of course as we always have talked about word of mouth is the way a podcast grows okay everyone especially our crna nation thanks for hanging with us for this episode remember keep ventilating and keep those patients ventilating if you're doing an awake intubation and we will catch you on the next episode Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.